Thank you for checking out this episode of Christianity Still Makes Sense with Dr. Bobby Conway. This is a portion of a sermon delivered at Image Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. To hear the full message, head over to imagechurch.live and click watch. Hope you enjoy. Lord, I pray that you would descend upon us this morning, that you would just cast aside our anxiety, our depression, our worries, our fears, our doubts, the things that got us all tangled up. And may we just find that shalom. May your peace enter this room. May guests that perhaps don't have a relationship with you yet, may their eyes be open to see how great you are. And I just ask for your favor on this message. May you just touch us, Lord. This thing called life is hard. And we are thankful to have a helper. And we thank you that you love us with a perfect love. And Lord, I thank you that even in your call-outs to us, it's, your call-outs aren't for us to receive so that you'll love us more, but so that we can walk in your abundant life. And so I pray for those that would struggle to surrender to you, that would struggle to go all in with you. May they realize that they don't, they're not being invited into a performance-based relationship with you where you'll love them more if they do a bunch more. Uh, but rather, it's your grace that leads us to repentance. It's your kindness that leads us to want to live for you. And I pray that we'll all recognize that you know what's best for us. In Jesus' name, amen. I read the story about a mother who heard her seven-year-old screaming and wondered what in the world is wrong with him. And she ran into the bedroom only to discover that her two-year-old daughter was pulling on his hair and she would not let go. Mom walked up and tried to undo the hand a little bit from her son's hair as he was losing it at a premature age very quickly. And she said to her son, look, she doesn't know. She's only two years old. She doesn't realize that it hurts. And the mom left the room and she started to walk away and then she heard another scream and she says, what was that? And the son replied by saying, well, she knows now, right? <laughs> There's something about revenge that feels better uh, than reconciliation. I don't know what that is about us, but when we're hurt, hurt people want to hurt back. Our natural inclination when somebody offends us is not to shower them with love. Our natural reaction is we want to show them how wrong they were to offend somebody of such greatness as ourselves. And so we are people that will justify the wrongs that we commit, but we want justice for the wrongs that others commit against us. In other words, we don't play by the same set of rules with others that we want with ourselves. And it's important for us to realize that bitterness and anger and revenge do not lead in the pathway of God's blessing. In fact, Confucius once said, whenever you set on a journey for revenge, dig two graves. 
Well, that's what revenge does. It, it imprisons us. It hurts us. And the reason is that we want revenge is for the sake of justice, which can be understandable at times. But sometimes it's because we just don't know what to do with our hurt. We don't know what to do with our bitterness. We don't know what to do with our pain and our traumas. And so therefore, as a result, it's a way of punishing other people to stay stuck in our pain. I wonder, is there any pain this morning at the expense of others that you could let go of? Is there any hurt that you're carrying that perhaps God would want to say, let go of it? Is there any bitterness that you're feeling that is causing you to just have an iced over heart. The truth of the matter is, is life hurts sometimes. People hurt us. And I can tell you, uh, you know, being in the ministry now for, you know, a quarter of a century, uh, I've known some ministry pain myself. And I've been the cause of some ministry pain in others. Uh, We hurt each other, unfortunately. We hurt our spouses. We hurt our kids. We hurt our parents. We hurt our friends. Uh, And if we don't learn how to deal with this thing called relational hurt, we're going to get stuck in life. In fact, mental health is one of the distinctives at Image Church. And as I was talking uh, on love last week in 1 Corinthians 13, which how nice that that arrived the week of Valentine's Day, that love passage. I found myself reflecting on last week's message. And I thought about this idea of love. And I thought about, you know what? We talk a lot about mental health in books and seminars. But you know, something I don't really hear about is how love can really be the antidote to so many of our mental health issues. When you think about this idea of loving God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and loving our neighbors ourselves, that's what's known as the great commandment. And you know what? If you really think about this, if we would understand God's love for us, that would help so many of our identity issues. That would help us to be secure in him. And yet, if we would love God with all of our heart, that would protect us from chasing God substitutes that end up messing our life up. And then yet, if we would love people, and if people would love us the way that God intends, we would have so much less trauma relationally, and so much of our mental health is because of what? We don't have a core identity of understanding how God loves us. We end up with God substitutes because we don't love God, and then we hurt each other, and others hurt us, and then we get relational trauma, and all of this could be solved, most of it anyway, with the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbors, your health is a secret to dealing with our mental health issues. We should always ask ourselves with our mental health, is there, like, behind our anxieties is insecurity. Behind our worries is insecurity. Behind our depression is often a lack of hope and trust in God's sovereign plan. Like, we should be trying to get at how is my mental health in need of understanding the love of God better and loving others better. And so there we are when we think about trauma. And as we consider Black History Month, 
is part of diversity. And as we talk about diversity, it's not just a black and white thing. It's, it's age, it's wealth, it's, it's all kinds of things, right? We want to be diverse, but we like to, you know, honor Black History Month and, and it's an opportunity just to listen. It's an opportunity to remember some of the great contributions of our African-American brothers and sisters throughout history. I thought, you know what? I'm going to take a break on 1 Corinthians and I'm going to take the church through a one-chapter journey in the book of Philemon. And Philemon's this one-chapter book. And let me introduce you to the cast. Philemon is uh, an individual in this, and he was the slave owner of Onesimus, and Onesimus uh, was basically a slave. And somewhere along the line, the relationship went south. And Onesimus takes off, and ditches Philemon, and along the way, he encounters Paul, the apostle, and ends up hearing the gospel and gets saved. And now what Paul does in this book is he wants Onesimus, the slave, to go back to his master, Philemon, in order to experience reconciliation. But in order for this reconciliation to happen, there needs to be an understanding of the gospel. Otherwise, it's not going to transpire because people will hang on to their hurt, they'll hang on to their bitterness, and they will not become one apart from it. And so this is basically a little book that demonstrates for us the outworkings of the gospel in the life of Christian believers. What is the call of us to move beyond our bitterness, our hurt, and our pain? And along this unpacking of Philemon today, I will, you know, address some of the differences between, you know, the slave that that took place in the antebellum south and the slavery of the ancient Roman world. So we'll address some of those questions as we go. But If we are going to be a diverse church, that's going to mean that we're going to have to learn how to move past past pain. In fact, one of the things that that is hard about trauma is it gets trapped. There was a popular book that came out a few years ago called The Body Keeps the Score. And so if you think about the African-American story, even in America, It's so traumatic. And you can sense the trauma sometimes in our African-American brothers and sisters. And you know what our African-American brothers and sisters need from us that aren't African-American? Is just some validation of the pain. And you know what we learn about validation? Validation will help people heal. We leave people stuck in their pain when we're not willing to validate. Have you ever been hurt by a spouse that won't validate what they did wrong? Or a person that won't validate? When something is validated, guess what? That speeds up the healing process. And not only that, we don't have to be on the defensive as non-African Americans because when somebody's sharing their pain and hurt, they're not saying it's your fault. They're just sharing their story. And when we come alongside our brothers and sisters and say, I hear you. I'm sorry that that happened. And by the way, not only that, trauma gets passed on. And I would say it even to my African-American brothers and sisters because I believe we're building such a relationship with one another now that that I think that you would hear me in saying that, that that 
that trauma story that's been a part, it was so traumatic. And I hate that trauma. In fact, I, I, I want to see people be healed. It gives my heart such joy when I meet with a Pax and he goes, this has just been such a healing experience for me being in this church. That gives my heart such happiness that we want this to become an infection that passes around and helps people to find healing of realizing that we will actually listen to each other and help people to heal from traumas. And you know what? You can imagine Onesimus and Philemon were traumatized as a result of this encounter that took place. And so here's one thing I'll say is reconciliation trumps revenge. You, can, you cannot experience reconciliation without forgiveness, but you can forgive without reconciliation because sometimes you have to forgive somebody but that person might not be willing to be reconciled or that relationship might look different. So Onesimus is a name that actually means useful, interesting enough. If you ever heard of Cotton Mather, he was a Puritan pastor uh, back in uh, the time of slavery when it was taking place. And in negotiating his pastorate, they offered him a slave. He wanted a slave, a personal slave. Can you imagine that? He wanted a personal slave to, to assist him, and he gave the slave the name Onesimus. Onesimus was a common name for slaves because the name means useful. In fact, the first people to be given the name Ho was African-American females that were serving as slaves, and they were working a hoe, and they were called hoes. It's like they didn't even get to retain their name, because why? They were considered tools, onesimus, useful, you're productive, less than human. This is uh, what was happening in our own country at one time. And so Philemon is a name that means one who is kind. So you can see now Philemon is a master of a slave named Onesimus that runs away, but Philemon is going to be called to live up to his name and to be kind to Onesimus, who seemingly is useless to Philemon, but Paul will say he's useful. So now let's check this out as we dive into this book. But before we do, let me read a quote by Craig Keener, the great New Testament scholar that I love to refer to from time to time. He said, slaves were found in all professions and generally have more opportunity for social advancement than free peasants. Now, this is slavery in the biblical world, right? Uh, unlike the vast majority of slaves in the United States and the Caribbean, they were able to work for and achieve freedom, and some freed slaves became independently wealthy. This social mobility applied especially to the household slaves, the only kind of slave addressed in Paul's writings, economically, socially, and with regard to freedom to determine their future. So that is an interesting thought. From the standpoint of ancient slave owners, the lost time of an escaped slave was lost money and was legally viewed as stolen property to which one harboring him was liable. But more important, slaves themselves were not cheap, and Philemon might have already bought another slave to replace him. Now, recapture normally meant severe punishment, 
Old Testament law harboring escaped slaves, but Roman law required Paul to return Onesimus to his master with serious penalties if he failed to do so. Paul uses his relationship with Philemon to seek Onesimus's release. In a standard letter of recommendation, one would plead with someone of equal or sometimes lower status on behalf of someone of lower status. Paul was not Philemon's equal socially or economically, but as a spiritual father, he had grounds to claim the equality that characterized ancient friendship. So now, when we think about slavery in the biblical world, in the, really the Greco-Roman world, a lot of times people will talk about, oh, you know, the Bible's permitting slavery and all that. We have to understand what Paul's doing. It's not like these Christians had the authority to overthrow slavery. It was just one of the social systems, not only in their day, but throughout the world, okay? And so it was more like indentured servitude in the Greco-Roman world. Sure, sometimes masters would treat slaves wrong, but it was like a debt retirement program. So it didn't mirror the slavery that we see in American history or that you see in the Caribbean, uh, which was just absolutely atrocious and brutal. Uh, There was a way out. In fact, even in Old Testament, some slaves wanted to belong to their master for good because they were treated so well, they would have an all put through their ear just to say, I'm committed to you. And so it was a relationship in which, you know, a wealthy slave owner could take care of the individual, provide financially for the individual, and they felt like this was a secure job. I mean, it had, you know, a retirement package, so to speak. There was always going to be security, food on the table, uh, you know, and some of these slaves really loved their masters. Totally different than the common American experience. So when we're thinking about slavery and it comes up and people use that as an objection against the Bible, number one, realize there's a difference between that kind of slavery and what we see in American history. Number two, realize that it was the Bible that was used to eventually overthrow it with William Wilberforce, for example, in England, uh, ending the slave trade, or even in America, though some would sadly use the Bible uh, to enforce slavery as well. But when people got the bigger picture of the scripture and the truth of it, they understood that we are free in Christ and that we're equal in identity that is given by God. So if you can imagine, though, you're a new movement. You're Paul, you're the apostle, you're writing and people will criticize you know, these writers for not getting, they'll say, you didn't get rid of slavery. Well, they didn't have the power to get rid of slavery. The Romans were in charge. Like, so in other words, what they're doing is they're, they're showing how to be the church in the middle of a culture, regardless of how the culture is. And that's what we are to do. We use the Bible and we show how do we be the church in the midst of a culture. And yet what Paul's doing is he's showing principles that trump abuse and he's showing how to treat one another so i wanted to kind of set the table on that a little bit as we get into this book now let's consider verse one paul he starts off introducing his name and you think well that's kind of weird why is he saying his name is paul at the beginning why doesn't he sign off at the end because the way that they wrote back then is 
you would write your name, Paul, right? And then when you're done with the letter, right, what would happen is, is you would fold it up. Excuse me. And as you would fold the scroll up, and the scroll would go on the road, right, when you're finished with the letter, and it would travel. And then when it was done, you would break the seal, and then the first thing you would see is who it's from. You would have to unwrap the whole thing to, if it was real long. Oh, who, who was this from? You know, this is a 10-foot deal here. You would know at the beginning this was from Paul. All right? So he says, Paul, and he identifies himself as the author. A prisoner for Christ Jesus. Ah, so this is one of the prison epistles, right? We know that there's four prison epistles of the 27 New Testament letters, and this is one of them, right? And so Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. So Timothy is kind of his uh, cohort, and you know this message is coming from Timothy as well. And now the audience to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. So that's the way that the early church met. They met in homes. Uh, some people would say, oh, see, th these were house churches. We need to get rid of all buildings. Well, that's an, that, there's a reason that they were meeting in houses and not in buildings, because they were being persecuted to death. And you didn't want to be public in a building, you went underground. In, in persecution times for the church, you don't get to meet in public facilities, you go underground. But if you look at the Edict of Milan in 312 and Constantine legalizing Christianity uh, as a Roman emperor to do that at the beginning of the fourth century, what ends up happening? They start to build again. So buildings aren't, aren't the evil. Buildings can be a great tool for meeting. But it's nice to know that you don't have to have the structure of a church building for the church to go on because when Satan comes against the church with persecution, you can meet in the house. And so the early church met in homes. We meet in homes, but we also gather as a, a bigger body together in a facilities like this, and we're thankful for that. And then he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. You know, part of our prayer life should include gratitude, and we should be spending time in our prayer thanking God for people that have impacted our life. We give God thanks for the rich relationships that we have, and that's Paul. He says, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And you can hear him, he's, he's getting things ready, right? He's like, I've heard about your love, and I'm about to, I want to hear about more of your love uh, toward Onesimus, right? And so he says, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now, this Sharing of the faith can be the way we share our faith through the gospel, the way we share our faith through our generosity, the way we share our faith through our gifts, through the way we share our faith through just the way we live our life. But it's in noticing the sharing of our faith helps us to what? Understand something very important, and it's this. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. In other words, the key to understanding all that God has in store for us as believers is to give our life away. We have to share our life. Our life is like a loaf of bread. It's meant to be broken and shared 
for others to digest. And if you keep the whole loaf to yourself, you'll never realize all that is in store for you. In other words, Paul's wanting Philemon to realize that there is a secret, right, to joy, giving your life away. Do you give your life away? Like, like, do, do, like is, your life, is your life ministering to others? Are you serving others? Like, there, there's something satisfying. Like, I did a funeral this week for Kathleen in our church, her daughter, uh, passed away, and they asked if I would do the message. And uh, I recorded the, the eulogy, and they wanted me to do it around addiction uh, because her daughter struggled deeply with it for years. And I did a message on addiction. And the message went out in Northern California, and I get a text yesterday, and this, this just blessed my heart. Man, when your message was done, they literally started applauding and the priest came up and he wanted a copy of your talk on addiction. Well, why am I sharing that? Here's why. Because of the, the satisfaction of just thinking, wow, giving my life away, sharing my story. And here yesterday, I'm just roaming around and I'm doing a funeral in Northern California while I'm in North Carolina. And I thought, I love that. Thank you for checking out this episode of Christianity Still Makes Sense. This show is just one of the many resources available to those who are doubting their Christian faith. You can also find others at ChristianityStillMakesSense.com. This is a listener-supported show, and your gift of any amount helps shows like this continue. Click on the donate link on our website. Also, catch Bobby on Pastor's Perspective, where he answers your questions. Finally, if you're watching on YouTube, be sure to click subscribe and check out our other videos on the channel. This show is sponsored by K-Wave and Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa.